the podium's a dead giveaway. It's me, right? Error time. Error time. The only bad thing is I don't know. Gabe, can I put this here? All right, he blesses it. You see that? That was the official the official blessing there. So, all right, let me get this thing up here a normal person height, and we'll be good to go. All right, um, I'm going to talk about communion this morning, so I want you to turn with me if you or flip with me or turn your phone on and go to First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, uh, which is pretty much the chapter that lays out everything uh, in brutal detail about what we call communion, or more accurately, I guess what the Scripture refers to as the Lord's Supper. Um, interestingly enough, over the years, as a result of, um, I'm going to try to be careful because I don't want to say it like I'm throwing under the bus what we're doing here, but this really is something that evolved over the years because of the abuse that went on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because initially the Lord's Supper was that. It was a supper. And, uh, you know, they were worried about people eating too much and drinking too much. And let me just say, you ain't going to eat or drink too much right there, all right? It ain't going to happen. <laughs> Unless you've been coming up here getting in it while we weren't looking. I don't know, like that. You know, it seems like every church I ever went to after we do communion, uh, the kids, uh, you know, they descend upon the communion cups and they're just hitting it. You know what I mean? Just one after the other. Doesn't look real good, but <laughs> it is just grape juice for, so knock yourselves out. Uh, but over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, um, we're going to go through this, I told Justin, not in brutal detail, uh, but in some ways that I think that are very important. I think it's interesting this morning that we're observing communion because, um, because of the fact, and it's been alluded to if you've been on Facebook, I actually have not been looking around at what's been going on in the world. I've been kind of like living like an ostrich or something. I don't know what's up. But I got on Facebook, and I'm like, oh, half the country's on fire. Oh, I didn't realize this. I, just, I really did not know how volatile it was getting out there. Um, I heard there was a protest, I think, also at the mall yesterday in Mobile, from what I heard on face. There's, there are two today. Right, which is legit, you know what I mean? And it, it's, very, um, it's very volatile. And the, the problem with America and with the world is not necessarily racism, though that's a byproduct of the real issue, you know what I mean? Uh, the, the government of the human heart has never been a law. It's always been the creator. Uh, and when we try to govern the human heart outside of the creator, we, we get things like this. Uh, and they develop not in an instantaneous manner, but over time, obviously. Uh, the things that we deal with in our country are not unique to an, or they're not an American problem. They're a human problem. They're a heart problem. Um, and the only thing that can squelch that and can deal with any issue that the human heart deals with is the gospel. Um, and as we come to observe communion this morning, the essence of communion is the gospel. Um, you know, over the years, I've been in various churches that are defined by different stripes and manners and whatnot, and I hate saying things like that because I don't want to create a, like an us versus them mentality. But unfortunately, in the body of Christ at large, there is, a, there is a, an aspect of communion that has been made all about us. The whole thing revolves around who we are, where we're at, what we have done, what we haven't done, how right we are, how wrong we haven't been, how worthy we are, how worthy we're not. And the whole thing turns into this very somber, very morbidly introspective um, event in which, to be honest with you, for years when I walked into the church building and I saw communion, my heart just dropped uh, because I was like, great, here it goes. I know what happened this week. I know what happened last month. I know what's been going on this year. And I am going to die a swift, horrible death the minute that bread touches my tongue. I'm going to drop over dead. And I got an interesting story about that that I'll save for later on. Uh, but, you know, when we, 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 we live in a world that on every side that has always... Now, this is important to remember in a time we live right, like right now. The world has always operated in a division. Always. It's not like there have been, when we think about peace is not the rule, it is the exception when it comes to this world. There are momentary times of peace, but there's always huge, those, there are huge gaps in between those momentary times that are filled with division. It's, it, this is unfortunately nothing new. The good thing about what communion represents to you and I uh, within the body of Christ is that God has set up the church as him and it, its in how it functions to be a place of unity. At least that is what God has intended. That doesn't mean that it's always like that. 
Uh, but that's what really what the about communion is about. It is about the unity that another believer shares with each other and that common unity they share with uh, Christ, their Savior, and how we all collectively come together under that banner. You know, and, this, and as we come into this, I want us to see that in uh, this moment as we observe the Lord's table, uh, we come declaring an unbreakable unity that we enjoy with Christ, with the good news, and his work of unity among the church. Now, when we get to 1 Corinthians, it's very apropos that Paul writes all this stuff about unity and communion to this church because if there was a, a, the quintessential divided church, it would be First Corinthian, the, the Corinthian, not the First Corinthian church. This is then the Second Corinthian church, you know, but the Corinthian church at large. And so uh, they had all kinds of problems, and we've talked about that in the past, and I don't want to revisit them. Uh, but one of the issues that he spends a large amount of time, there's two main issues that he spends a large amount of time on in the book of Corinthians. Uh, an overall idea of division, but one of them is the operation of the gifts within the church that was just out of control, and the other one he deals with is the out-of-control observance of the Lord's table. He goes into very detailed, um, you know, ins and outs about what's going on with that and the implications of it. You know, a lot of the times we look at surface issues and we say, well, let's fix that surface issue, but we really haven't uh, dealt with the root of the problem, and that's what Paul's doing here. And he's emphasizing the importance of communion and how it relates to how you and I uh, relate to one another and how we relate to Christ. Those two are directly affected. So uh, I got this quote. I think it may have been from Andy Stanley. I don't know. I should write who I get these quotes down from. I don't know why I don't do it, but it's in italics in my notes, so I know I didn't say it. So here it is. Uh, the best way to abuse the Lord's table and the best way to ruin what God has intended in the order, ordinance of the Lord's Supper is to make the focus of the observance centered around anything or anyone other than Christ. That's the best way to mess it up. And that is exactly what was going on. Now, I don't think that I'm going to go through this whole sermon being a negative Nancy about the whole business because uh, I'm not going to talk about anything outside of what Paul talks about. And by the time we get to the end, it's actually a very encouraging and a very unifying matter that he brings up. So I'm going to talk about four things. You want me to tell you what they are or do you want me to just surprise you as I go? I've already ruined the surprise because I told you there were four things, so now you're going to be counting it down in your head the whole time, all right? So here's what's say it. Are you, are you this a challenge? All right, just look. Just because you're a new high school graduate, Lydia, doesn't mean... <laughs> oh, college. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just going off what the pastor said you graduated from. So, <laughs> and hence the division. So, <laughs> and number, my first point, interestingly enough, is a divided people. So, that's the first thing we're going to talk about. Uh, the second thing we're going to talk about is a disorderly practice. These all start with these two. Chris is impressed already. Number three... We're going to talk about a defined purpose behind communion. And the last thing we're going to talk about is a delightful unity. Aww. Hey, it took me like 10 minutes to think of all that, all right? Give me a break or I probably stole it off the internet. Number one, uh, as we get started in 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, I'm not going to read all the way through this and back up, but we're going to handle it as we go through it verse by verse uh, down to the end of the chapter. I know that sounds like a long way, but we're not going to like really tear it apart every single little bitty word. But I want us to get a good idea of what's going on here, and hopefully that will help us have a deeper appreciation of what we're about to observe at the end of the service today. So let's look at verse number 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's writing to these, this church at large, and he says, look at verse number 17. I'm sorry, not 20, verse 17. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when we... Well, excuse me, I'm going to have to pick my Bible up. i got to get one of them big letter Bibles. I can't see anymore. It says, for first of all, when you come together as the church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly, I believe it. For there must also be fractions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper... For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of another, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Yes, you read that right. They were coming to church. They were stuffing. Now, when, you, when we talk about this idea of gluttony, you have to put yourself in a Greek mindset here because it wasn't like they just got back from San Miguel's and they got the number 14 and they, got, they ate all like two bowls of chips beforehand and drank three Diet Cokes, then ate the number 14, and they went home in a food coma. That's not what's happening here. When they got together and ate like this, they would, the Greeks would eat and eat and eat till they could not eat anymore. They would go and they would vomit and they would come back and eat more. 
That's what they did in this day. When they would have these giant feasts and these giant parties, uh, when you think of the idea of gluttony, this is what we're talking about. They would just absolutely pack themselves so they could not eat anymore, expel all that, go back and eat and drink some more because they didn't want the party to end. And so when we think about this environment that Paul's writing here, don't think to yourself that they walked in with a green bean casserole and started eating their green bean casserole while somebody on the other side of the room didn't have anything to eat. It was much more than that. I mean, they were throwing down at a spread while some people on the other side of, I guess, the room or wherever it is they were observing because they didn't necessarily have church buildings in that day, wherever they were observing this would just sit over there hungry. And Paul's like, listen, when you come together to observe the Lord's Supper, I'm just going to go ahead and give you a heads up. What you're doing ain't it. All right? You can call it that, but that's not what it is. So he goes in and he lays out what's going on here because he points out, first off, the reason why this mishandling of your fellowship is a problem is because you're divided from one another. There's an issue there. Um, the word in, up here in uh, verse number, let's see here, verse number 17, when he talks about this, he, you come, to better, come together not for the better but for the worse. And then in verse number 18, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. This word division is a word that we also get in the English, English language schism or a, or a pulling apart of. And what he's saying here is there's a giant gap in the fellowship here. Not here, but there. Okay, so make sure we get that right. And it's interesting to note that while there was a giant gap, these people were still voluntarily meeting together. That's interesting to note in my mind at least. Because a lot of the times, particularly in the South, when you talk about a church with a gap or a church that splits, what do you have? You know, you have that church that doesn't like the way that somebody painted the nursery or, you know, the pastor prays in bare feet or something like that. And then uh, he's wearing shorts to church, all kinds of weird things. And so you go down the street to where the pastor at least wears sandals, you know what I mean? And then you change the name of your church to inflect the fact that you should cover your feet in the most holy moments. I'm just using you for an example, so just bear with me. And so this is when we think of splits and gaps in churches, we think of things from, that, from something that ridiculous all the way up to things that are seeming legit, seemingly legitimate, like theological issues. But in, one way or the other, between the ridiculous and the legitimate, what you see is no reconciliation. You see gigantic breakings apart. See, whereas in this instance, there was just this massive gap within the fellowship, but yet everybody was still coming together. One word that describes what is happening here in this fellowship, and we're going to look at the verse a little bit more down in verse number 22. He says, what, do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Are you to despise the church of God? And no, here it is, and shame those that have nothing. See, behind every movement of division, there's always a backdrop of shame. There's always one group shaming another group and causing a split or a rift within the unity. See, you can be together and not be unified. It's like, here's the thing. I heard an old country pastor say at one time, he goes, you can take a cat, two cats, tie their tails together and throw them over a, t uh, over a clothesline and they're going to be together, but they're not going to be unified. And in the Corinthians church, that's what was going on. It was like two cats' tails tied together, thrown over a line. They were together, but they weren't together, you see. And this word divisions is a, is a, gives the idea of something that's plural. It doesn't give the idea of like there was this one thing. You know what I mean? That wasn't it. It was everything. I mean, everything. Everybody was picking their sides. And we go back, and we, if we were to move forward in the book a little bit, actually, by the time we get to 1 Corinthians 14, you would, uh, uh, and back, even back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you'd see people going like, hey, I'm one of the Paul believers. I'm not one of the Apollos believers, you know. Pastor so-and-so baptized me. You know, I got saved at such-and-such church. You know what I mean? And what do we do? We connect ourselves with a secondary identity that God never intended us to connect ourselves with. And that's when division comes up. Now, I'm not saying, just as a side note, that every little thing should just be swept under the rug. Sometimes there are legitimate issues that come up and they have to be dealt with. But the outcome of dealing with issues is fellowship and unity, not division. That's the goal, you know. The goal is not division. The goal is unity. Sometimes that goal can be reached, and unfortunately, sometimes it cannot. These folks, they weren't even attempting to deal with anything. They were just all, they had their own song. They had their own hymn. They had their own prophecy. They had their own uh, teachers. They had their own identities. They weren't unified in one. So when they came together at the Lord's table, 
what was even the point? Paul said you're coming together, but you're not coming together for the betterment of the group or the betterment of the church. You're actually coming to better for the worse because the Lord's table promotes unity. And it's like shining a flashlight on the division of that church. Because it, even Paul asked the Corinthian church, he goes, is there division in Christ? Well, the obvious answer to that is no. The, home, the harmonious existence of the Trinitarian God that we serve proves that. And so Paul points out that uh, they're divided. They're more than just, I disagree. There's more than to it than that. It is a division. It is a wall that's going up. The division was just a fruit of a much deeper problem. Now get this. It was an issue of predetermined worth and identity. That's what it was. Because when he gets down here, if you want to look with me down in verse number 19, he says, For there also must be fractions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. That's a statement of worth and identity. What he's saying is, is listen, there's divisions because there's some of you that esteem other people in the church to a position where God or even themselves never even intended it. They did that with the Apostle Paul. Paul said, I'm, thank God I didn't baptize any of you sap suckers. Because if I did, you'd go around and say, I'm of Paul. He goes, I've not baptized any of you. Well, with the exception of the house of Stephen, I remember baptizing them and two other people. Other than that, that is it. So I am so glad that I just preached the gospel to you because I, know, I want to know nothing among you other than Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul said. He said, I'm not interested in anything else, but not because he didn't care about them, oops, but because he understood that the goal of what the church was to exist for was the gospel of Christ, not for the factions that were coming out of it. You know how you can tell when you begin, when uh, you and I begin to think ourselves better than other people? We tend to think about the way that we treat them, don't we? You know, I see Bill and, you know, I snub him, you know, which is fun snubbing him because I like to watch him cry a little bit. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but I see Bill, you know, and I act like I don't see him or whatever. I can remember there was this guy, I was an assistant pastor years ago, and he, he was actually a good guy. He just didn't know how to handle what was going on. And I walked up to him, I was like, hey, man, how's it going? I held out my hand, and he was from Massachusetts, so uh, he had a very interesting accent. You know, I talked to Angela the other day, and we were talking about how people from the north and the south talk. And I'm sorry, if you're from the north, you should get it wrong. Sorry, it's not my fault, all right? It's just what Jesus says. It's in the Bible somewhere, I'm sure. And so I'm talking to this guy, and I held up my hand to shake him. He goes, nope, can't do it. Can't do it. And he began to give me this whole reason as to why he couldn't do it. You know, it didn't make me mad. You know why? Because at least I knew what was going on. See, we, sometimes we see that as division, it's not necessarily always division. At least you know where the person's at then. At least you know where to relate to them and so we know what you can kind of handle with them. But the kind of division that's going on here is a matter of devaluing thoughts towards another person. See, they were looking at some people and said, these people are worth my attention. These people are not necessarily worth my attention. These people have a value. These other people do not have a value. Andy Stanley, he did say this one. Uh, he said, you will eventually not initially do what you think. You will eventually but not initially do what you think. Basically, he's just saying this, before you do anything, you think about it for a long time. He's saying before they did anything that looked like division, they were already thinking thoughts that brought about that action. And so Paul addressed that. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he says, For I say through the grace given to me that everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt everyone a measure of faith. So as we get into this, keep in mind these people were divided, but that's not the end of everything Paul had to say. It gets better. In verse 20, he talks about how there was disorder in this practice of the Lord's table. Because, And now here's something to note. I want you to to really get this in your mind, if you would please, about what it means to observe the Lord's Supper as a whole. Because in verse 17, 18, and in verse number 20, you'll see the phrase, when you come together. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is to be together with other believers. That's the purpose of it. It's we come together under one identity who Christ is. Um, the Lord's Supper is not something for the Lord and you. It's something for the Lord and us. That's very, very important. I, there's a, an undergoing, and this is where, okay, I'm kind of scared to say this. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> Let me get over here. But uh, this is the safe place on the left hand. 
Uh, but there's an, over, there's an overarching movement within Christianity now that, like, you just observe the Lord's table, like, at breakfast, you know, just like, just with you, between you and the Lord. I'm of the persuasion, here speaks buddy, not the Lord, that the Lord's table is for his people together and him. It's not for me to just kind of hang out on my own and do it. It's, there's no purpose in it at that point, necessarily. So that's me. If you want to fight me in the comments later, I can handle it. I'll just... Justin told me to say that if you don't agree with me. So <laughs> he did not. He did not. He might fight me in the comments later. Who knows? Verse number 20. So we see as they get into this, they begin to redefine the purpose of the Lord's Supper. In verse number 24, or verse number 20, excuse me, I'm saying all the wrong numbers. Therefore, when you come together in one place, there it is again, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in, each one, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of another, and one is hungry and one is drunk. And he asks again, when he says what, and I have a new King James Version that they do a little something different with the punctuation. You may have that in yours too. But in the Greek language, there's not a whole lot of punctuation. It's like commas and periods. That's about it, really. All their emphasis comes in how the word structures are put together. So when you see this word what, it's not a curse word in the Greek language, but you're coming right up next to it kind of a thing. Like Paul is just like, what in the What? You know what I mean? What are you doing? You want to eat and drink? Fine. Do it at your house. This is not the place to throw down, all right? This is where we come together under one banner. And fortunately, we're not going to do that because I'm looking at these crackers, and I could take out all four of those and still have room. So we're not going to overeat here. Don't try it either, all right? I'm watching you. So they redefined what the Lord's table is about. They took something that came that God intended to be about Christ, the gospel, our unity, and they turned it into a party. You know, 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 40. Now, I understand in the context he's talking about a service in this, but it's applicable in this area too. He says, let all things be done decently in order. This is not like a throwdown. He actually tells them at the end of the chapter, he says, so when you come together, wait on each other. Just slow down a minute. Put the cover back on, you know, the potato salad. Let everybody get there first, and then I'll sit down together. Paul says, I don't know what you call this event, but it's not the Lord's Supper, all right? You can call it something else, but don't call it the Lord's Supper. Yes, sir, Doug? Uh, it almost sounds like the church did not supply this meal. Correct. Some people brought way too much. Right. Well, they were bringing their own, and they were, like, just going and sitting at their own table and picking out on it, and people were sitting at another table, so to speak, didn't have anything. No, no, it's, no, this isn't. No, this is what we did because we were, this is, to be honest with you, what we did, not that I've lied to you thus far, but the reason why we do this is because we were afraid this was going to happen again. That's why. Um, it, well, it was, well, it was very similar to potluck, Yes. Right, so I guess what we should do then is, Lydia, you should take some of the bread and go give it to somebody else first. Is that what you're saying you want to do? No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to make sure, because the way I always thought of it, I guess, was like, I'm sorry if I'm too loud. The way, I guess, like, in my brain, I always thought of it as, like, everybody brings, like, you know, somebody brings potato salad and somebody right. brings a pizza from Little Caesars or I right. don't know, and it's all kind of, like, on a table and then everybody right. comes in and right. then, like, other people were just kind of... Like eating all that they could and leaving nothing for anybody right. else. Well, I didn't think of it as people like bringing their own thing for themselves. Yeah. And kind of doing it as a show off thing. You like, I don't need just one meal, so I can have three. Right. Yeah, they were. Well, the thing was, is they not they may not even necessarily, and I don't know their motives, and it may not been that they were necessarily showing off. It's what it's that they were not aware of other people around them. Okay. Unity makes you aware of who's around you. Mm -hmm. You see what I mean? Yeah. And so, and it wasn't like the potato salad was the Lord's Supper. <laughs> the, 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 the meal and the observance of something similar to this all went together. Because at the Last Supper, the disciples uh, and Jesus ate, and then at the end of that meal, he went and took a piece of bread, and he broke it, and he dipped it, and he passed out the cup, so they were integrated together. It's not like the meal was the communion, the communion and the meal went together, all right? So what was happening is, is they were coming together with all their food and everybody was just doing their own thing. 
and Paul's got some pretty harsh words about that. And it, the Lord, I feel like, just opened my eyes a little bit to why the harsh warnings about the Lord's Supper were such a harsh thing and how they've been, I feel like they've been somewhat misinterpreted, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So we see that they were redefining what was happening. They were acting very, they were acting very rude and unaware as well because there were people that would come in hungry and they wanted a fellowship within the Lord's table and the Lord's Supper too, but they were being excluded. You know, it reminds me of that adage that we've used in church for all those years that the, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. But these folks were operating as if it were not, as if there was special placement for other people. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about our church as well. I don't get that vibe here at all. For example, just think about this. Just this morning, the, the pastor, the lead pastor, the what is your name again? What do you like to go by? The Grand Potentate Pastor, Bishop of My Soul, the third? Father Wakiza, his archbishopness is, uh, ooh. <laughs> that, I know. Somebody write that down. <laughs> So, but just for example, just as a minor example, I mean, I'm, I don't even know what I am. It doesn't matter. I'm here doing this, all right? I'm teaching, I'm preaching this morning. I'm going to be leading communion later. The pastor's right here. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. That's not what this is about. That's not what church is about. Church isn't about positions. Church is about the, the, the organization, the togetherness of the church is about using our gifts for somebody else's betterment in whatever environment or arena that means. Uh, this is not an this is not an Amway spiritual Amway scheme. All right, it's not. Yeah, I know you wouldn't. I'd have to buy it myself. And never mind. <laughs> so let's move on with this real quick because I don't want to take up too much time. I know uh, you guys have got to go to the restaurants and stand in line for forty seven hours right now after this, right? So, all right, let's move on to verse number twenty three. I want to talk. I want to define the purpose in more detail as we move down through this, because we can talk about it in generalities, but it's not going to help us understand exactly what's going on. So, uh, verse number twenty three, Paul. Well, at the end of verse number twenty two, Paul says, "Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you." He goes, "Here's what it's really about." As he gets into verse twenty three, he says, "For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you." That the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this, and here's the key. Do this in remembrance of who? Me. All right. He goes on, he says, In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, uh, this cup in the New Testament. I read that wrong. This cup is the new covenant. In my blood, this do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you... Now, here's our participation in the fellowship. As often as you eat this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, he, I mean, it's, I, it is amazing to me how often, and myself included in this statement, how often I misconstrue Scripture just because I've experienced something in my life that doesn't line up with it. And I just embrace that experience, and then I'm, I, I get into Scripture, and I say, no, wait a minute, I thought and I did this about communion for all these years, but it is plain as day right there, the purpose of communion and what it's for and what it says when we observe it. You see, for years I thought what communion was about was about keeping me right with God. That's what I thought it was about. I thought it was they, they lower the lights just a little bit. You know, and the pastor leans in and he's like, if you have any unconfessed, no, they don't fall like that. Maybe they do. If you have any unconfessed sin in your heart, now's the time. Come to the altar. And you're like, no, wait a minute. You just told me to come in front of everybody and be like, walk up there. And you might as well just say, hey, guys, I send my guts out for a while. I'm going to go up here and get this thing right with God. I mean, you might as well say that, you know. And then if you don't do it, then you got the public humiliation of having to, you know, ixnay the cup when it comes by. You know what I mean? You're sitting there, you're like, no, I'm good. I'm just going to pray in my seat. And here comes the cup. You're like, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Who's looking? Who's looking? You know, you don't take it because you're afraid that if you even touch that cup, you're going to die. Now, does that sound mocking? Yes. Why? Because it is so damaging to the soul and the mind of the believer and on top of that, I feel like it's kind of what Paul says to the Colossians church. He said, Doesn't, don't let any man cheat you. Don't let any man rip you off from what you actually have in Christ. And that environment that has been created around the, the activity of the observance or whatever you want to say about communion is ripping believers off. It's ripping us off because it makes us miss the unity of the church. 
And you know what religion does? Religion steps in and redefines things and tries to use the same terms that God uses and tries to put a different spin on them. Having lived in Utah for seven years, I had a crash course in that. Because just because you say Jesus doesn't mean we're talking about the same guy. And just because you say church doesn't mean we're talking about the same thing because that's what religion does. It hijacks things. Even Satan did it in the garden, didn't he? He came in there and said, hey, God really say that? And then what did he do? He placed that bit of doubt that allowed the human race to plunge into being controlled by something rather than living in fellowship with someone. The minute that they believed the lie, they actually placed themselves in a position of utter control. Whereas God never intended it to be that way. Satan didn't come and walk in the garden with Adam and Eve, did he? Satan didn't want to fellowship with man. He just wanted to entrap man. And that's what religion does. It will use the things of God, twist them, and try to entrap you rather than set you free. And so many times in so many different religions, we take these things that we, we put into our, our bodies here in the, in the moment. We eat the bread, we take the wine, and we try to make it out like they're these little pieces of magic that we put into us. You know what I mean? And that they just do something different for us all of a sudden. Let me tell you, this right here represents the greatest miracle you and I could ever conceive. And a matter of fact, we couldn't even conceive it. Sorry, let me back that up. We couldn't even conceive what God would have to do in a miraculous way to redeem you and I. So when we take communion, we're observing how we have already ultimately been healed in the whole man, not just in a moment. God doesn't take these things when they enter into our bodies and transfigure them into something that they're not. You know what? If it did, in my opinion, it cheapens what this is for. Because this is in remembrance of him, not in remembrance of my deficiencies. It's the remembrance of how he's whole, not a remembrance of how I'm not whole or wasn't whole, so to speak. This blood that the Bible tells us there can be no remission without the shedding of blood. This goes all the way back to the book of Leviticus. In remembrance of me. I like in verse number 26 that the thought dawned on me years ago for the first time after I'd been a believer for over a decade that there's going to be a day that we don't observe communion anymore. In verse number 26 it says, you show the Lord's death until he comes. So there's going to be a day. See, this table now is about the body, the broken body, the, the effects that sin has physically on man. And it's about the blood, the thing that redeems the soul of man before God. See, it's about those things in a figure, so to speak. But there's going to come a day when the figure is going to literally be before us. The wounds will be before us. The body will be before us. The, the everything about what this represents will be right there in front of us. And we won't fellowship with the elements. We'll fellowship with the actual substance of Jesus Christ himself. There'll be a day when it's over. In Revelations 5, 6, uh, the writer says, Behold, in the midst of the thrones and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders, there stood a lamb as it had been slain. See, that's what was for us this morning is the representative of the lamb that was slain. And his coming, his death. The only wounds in heaven are going to be the ones that Jesus still bears. That's it. We'll have no need of observances because he will be the observance. In verse number, 29, uh, verse number 27, now we get into the scary part, right? This is the part that, you know, freaks people out, freaked me out for years. He says, therefore, since this is about the body and the blood of the Lord, he says, therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Did you get that? Did it say anything about you and your sin? No. It said nothing. It doesn't make for good sermons, you know. It doesn't make for a great altar call. It really doesn't. When you have communion and you get up there and you tell people this is about how your sin's gone, you know, it, do, it doesn't, doesn't get the response that makes me feel good about this blistering red-hot sermon that I'm delivering to you now, you know, because I have no visual effect 
to justify the amount of times that I hit the podium, which I'm about to knock over anyway, so I won't do that, or the amount of times that you yelled amen. I have no visual stimulus then because a stimulation. I don't know how it went. When the, what Paul is saying here has nothing to do with what you did last week. It has everything to do with what Christ did 22,000, excuse me, 20,000 years ago, 2,000 plus years ago. Hashtag bad math. And so he talks about, and let's keep reading. It says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, and we think of that word judge as kind of a harsh thing. That's not what he's talking about here. He defines himself. And I love how the Bible defines itself. If you'll just read long enough, you're going to get the answer to the thing that confuses you. You know, because he says we're not judged, uh, we're, but when we are judged, verse 32, we are chastened by the Lord. There you go. Being chastened is something that every believer deals with. And it doesn't mean you get your leg broken. In, in religion, chastening is all about getting a throat punch when you mess up. That's what it's all about. Like God is just sitting up there ready to put you in a spiritual figure four till you just submit to everything and stop all your sinning. Listen, if pain stopped us from sinning, there will be some sins that I didn't commit 30 times in a row, all right? We, we, we adjust our reward punishment centers in our brain, don't we? He's not talking about this physical, pun, like he's going to break your legs type of a thing. He's talking about him coming to you in a very real way to correct what's going on in your behaviors. Not because there's something wrong with you, because there may be something wrong with the behavior. So he goes on and he says, verse 32, But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. I think I skipped some verses, but oh well, sorry. We're just going to deal with these right now, the ones I read. But, uh, so this, what is this danger? What is this danger? Now, here's the first thing. Coming to the Lord's table has nothing to do with your worth. Has nothing to do with your worth. I heard for years, do not drink or eat if you're unworthy, if you're unworthy, if you're unworthy, if you're unworthy, if you're unworthy. Man, I, that word is like being in my head, and when I would hear it at church, it was like being screamed into a cave, and it would just echo over and over again in my mind, unworthy, 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 because that's all you heard. It was like the table was about your goodness, not Christ's goodness. And this is incredibly important. The New King James Version nails it 100% in this translation when he says, do not eat it in an unworthy manner. When you tell somebody they are worthy or not, you're talking about adjectives. We're talking about adverbs here. Well, welcome back to school, young people. All right? We're talking about a definition of an action, not a description of a thing. God's not trying to say you have to be the worthy thing. He's saying no. When you participate in this, make sure you do so in a manner that represents what it's about. You know, he makes this one comment. It caught my attention, and I thought about this for the last couple of days. And it's down here, and uh, let's see here. Make sure I get it right, because I've, I've skipped so many verses I didn't mean to. I jumped around all over the place. In verse number 32, he says, But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. I'm like, what in the world does that mean? How does the condemnation that the world lives in relate to this? Well, this is my opinion on it, so take it for what it's worth. The world cares nothing about the gospel. They have no relationship to the gospel whatsoever. They don't understand the gospel. Their minds are still blinded by the wicked one. I think what Paul is telling us here is this, is that God is saying, listen, do not treat the gospel like the world treats the gospel. Don't relate to this activity in a flippant manner. Like if we went out to and set up communion at Walmart, you know what I mean, and say, come on in, everybody enjoy communion, you know what I mean? We'll put one of those falling prices sticker on it or something just to catch their eye. And we come by, you know what's probably going to happen? Most people are going to be like, I'm not doing that. You know, I don't, what does that even mean? Or they're gonna, they don't understand the gospel. The point that I'm making here is this. is Paul saying, listen, when you come to this table, come, come to the table in relation to what the gospel is and who Christ is to you. Who he is to us, I should say. Let's look at the end of these verses. We'll finish it up. Verse number, <clears throat> verse number 33. 
He says, therefore, my brethren, and here's the phrase again, when you come together to eat, there it is again, wait for one another. You know what that is? That's consideration. It's awareness. It's fellowship. It's look, you, to wait for somebody, you have to be consciously aware of whether or not they're, they are there or not. You have to be looking for them to be there. You have to be wanting them to be there. You have to be cognizant of the fact that you don't want to move forward until these other people are with you. We do it all the time. We eat dinner at, at my house or if we eat dinner over at Angela's house. We, uh, Angela and I usually, one of the two of us, whoever's house we're cooking dinner at at that time, we don't put all the food on the table and her and I just sit down and start eating. No, we wrangle all the cats in, you know what I mean? You sit here, you sit there. Yes, you're going to eat that. No, you're not. Stop. Okay, we're all going to pray before murder breaks out, all right? So <laughs> you wait for one another. That's why if you go out to eat with somebody and you're going to be late, sometimes you'll call them and you'll say, go ahead and what? Just start without me. Don't wait on me. I'm running behind. Why? Because you know what it means to wait for somebody to enter into a fellowship and to a meal with them. He says, wait for one another. And he goes, but if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. He's saying, listen, he's not saying if you're starving, don't come here and eat. What he's saying is, listen, if you just want to have a meal for the sake of just having a meal, do that at home, okay? Take the chicken pot pie back to the house if that's what you're wanting to do. He says, any man is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And he says, and the rest I will set in order when I come. I don't even want to know what that meant. So there was, I mean, I mean, these poor folks, that's all I got to say. Paul showed up and he's all right, we're about to do this. You know, he's rolling up his sleeves. But you know the great thing about this is Paul wasn't, oftentimes I think we read the scriptures and I believe we come to the conclusion that God's like irritated with what's, what goes on with us sometimes. He's not irritated. Now we get irritated at one another, right? We do. You, everybody should have said amen there. Y'all should have ran up and down the aisles when that happened, you know. You know, hanky, somebody break out a worship flag. It should have just went on there. We irritate one another. God doesn't get irritated with you and I. He isn't writing this to the Corinthians because he's like, you know, you know face palm in his hand, like, what in the world are they doing down there? You know what I mean? He's writing this for this reason. So when we meet together on a Sunday like this, or whenever it is we meet, and we put everything out, and we get together, and we take that bread, and we take that cup, and we drink it, we can enjoy all the benefits of being related to each other spiritually and being related to Jesus Christ. It's for our benefit. This is for our good. Because remember, what did he say at the beginning? He goes, when you come together, you don't come together for the what? The better. See, that's, that's his goal, coming together for the better, to enjoy one another and to enjoy Christ. He did not institute this as a means to control your behavior. He did not. That's not what it's for. He did it so we can venerate the finished work, so we can enjoy the finished work. And as we come together in unity, we're displaying to the world around us that, unfortunately, they're probably not all looking in. We've got live stream. Hopefully they are. We're displaying in some small way that there's still a place. There's still a group. There's still a way of thinking. There's still a philosophy of spiritual reality that promotes unity, promotes love, promotes faith, promotes a togetherness under a God whose idea all those things were. So, right, let's do, I guess, uh, can we get some uh, background music there or something, Mr. Mike? I'm going to spin that one, jump that one on him. And what we're going to do at this time, I think, in order to continue to, you know, observe, kind of observe social distancing, which <laughs> kind of sketchy in here right now, but... Uh, what we'll do is, is, in our typical fashion, we'll have the families come forward. Maybe we can just, like, start over here, work our way this way, maybe in some kind of decently ordered manner. I don't know if you want to rush it. That's good. I don't care. But we'll start over here. If you'll just take a, take a little bit of both, take one of both or however many you need, go back to your seat. We'll read back over the scriptures. We'll pray together. How does that sound? And then we'll observe the whole thing together. So Mr. Mike's going to hit us with some music. Yes, Carol.
Oh, okay. We got someone passing it out. Okay. Yeah, we're going to pass. They, okay. I mean, they can come to the table. That's a good idea. But as they, instead of them grabbing it themselves, I'm, we've asked uh, uh, Fred Melvin if they'll put on gloves Fred and hand Melvin, it to people as they come by. I guess if Fred's still here. Yeah, there he is. Yeah. Fred, you got the gloves? Fred's like, I ain't got no gloves. <laughs> I got some hand sanitizer. <laughs> I'm going to have to find where it talks about COVID-19 in the New Testament in relationship to the Lord's table. Oh, here they are. There they are. She's got them right here. I'm just doing the sermon. Come on up over here. There we go. Right here in the middle, if y'all want to start coming down here, it'll be fine. Huh? You guys want some in the booth? Yes, thumbs up. Yeah, Fred or Melvin, well, he's got it. He's on top of it. All right, let's start back here in the back in the middle. We'll work our way up here. Or anybody in the middle for that matter. Just come on up. I didn't say anything about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Heard cats. Guys, if y'all want to go ahead.
I'm worthy to take it, but not worthy to grab it on my own. <laughs> I was just telling them we were, we're worthy to take it, but we're not worthy to grab it off the plate without assistance. <laughs> Does everybody have everything they need? We don't leave anybody out. That would be unbiblical, right? You can stand up if you want to. You can sit down. You stand up. Let's stand up. Let's do this. <laughs> All right. So let's read these scriptures real quick. Paul says, as he reminds us of what Jesus delivered to us, he said, when he talked about, he took the body, the bread, and he broke it. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. You do this in the remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink and remember some of me. Let's pray together, okay? Lord Jesus, we're thankful for uh, your beaten, broken, crucified body. We're thankful for the love that puts you there. We're thankful for the spirit that we now enjoy as a result of not only your death, but your resurrection. We thank you for the blood that you shed that cancels all sin. That makes us eternally and without end right with you. And Lord, we're thankful as we remember this, that there will be a time in which you come and we will be face to face with you. And that we will no longer need to observe this because we will observe you as the broken, crucified, risen Savior. We're thankful for who you are, what you've made us as a result of your work, and we glory in that in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.